Have you ever heard of my Nazi knock-knock joke, Louis? No. Knock-knock. Who's there? We will ask the questions. Now get out of here. And welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 34.8. You did not see this coming. I have three things to preface this discussion. The first is, this is a talk I had with my son after he took a course on fascist cinema in college. Since I majored in German history and cinema in my grad program, this was right up my alley, and we had a really good dialogue. Second, I tried to get this out by December 27th, which is Holocaust Remembrance Day. I failed that quest, and I'm sorry. And by the way... It is on that day because that is the day in 1945 when the Soviet army liberated Auschwitz. Third, in the last, I want to say, 20 years, we've had a resurgence in fascism in the United States. And since 2016, there have been more white supremacist conventions and meetings in the open. And everyone from Hollywood celebrities to elected members of Congress have been attending these rallies. Obviously, I am not celebrating National Socialist Film or National Socialist ideas on this podcast. So when I say things in this episode like Hitler Jugendquex is a really good film and everybody should see it, I'm not promoting genocide or patriarchal dictatorship. So I'm going to ask you to listen to this podcast and if you look up these films in my letterbox, just to read everything I say in context, not just the four-star rating for Triumph of the Will and decide, fuck this guy, I'm dropping his feet. I've spent most of my life studying the history of Germany and watching German films. If we ban these films, then we ban the ability to think critically about why they are evil. So I am against censorship of almost all types. The two tenets that I hold dear that I will not allow any debate on are, number one, the Holocaust happened, and there is incontrovertible proof of it, period. Two, Fascism is evil and led to the deaths of about 168 million people. Other than that, I'm willing to entertain pretty much any point of view. So don't blow up my social media saying outrageous shit about me with your high and mighty voice because you can't think like an informed citizen. This is an academic discussion. If you can't see that Lenny Riefenstahl was a talented director, then don't listen to this podcast. Don't start acting like the people that we're fighting. On the other side of the street, I don't need a bunch of fucking skinheads doing the same thing with their bullshit 88 codes and posting their Trump fists or trying to pull some fake cancel shit. I know how you operate, and I know how to deal with you. Now, if both sides can just calm the fuck down for maybe the next hour, maybe we can all learn something from studying propaganda by an odious regime that was created solely for the purpose of world domination and hate speech. Thank you. Okay, so I've got some, I got some other questions on the back half. We're gonna, yeah. we're gonna try to keep this as short as possible. Okay, so you took a class this semester. You're on the back end of this class. I think you got one more class left, where you studied National Socialist Cinema. 
Yeah, fascism and German cinema, yes. All right. Did you learn anything new about fascism? No. <laughs> okay. Did you learn anything new about cinema? Not not really cuz you the only reason I took that class cuz I know it so well. And that's for that's because of you. <laughs> you know, I I didn't walk in there not knowing who who Riefenstahl was or, you know, what her accomplishments were in cinema. I didn't know I didn't walk in not knowing who Goebbels was. You know, so it wasn't or the the Reichstag or the the minister of propaganda. I didn't I didn't like walk in like Oh, what are these subliminal messages about women doing in cinema? I didn't walk in not expecting that, you know. And it was it wasn't shocking to me when I saw, you know, Munchausen and how not secret they were about their pride about being Germans. It wasn't or Kohlberg and the very nationalistic views of or Jews Seuss and it wasn't it wasn't anything I wasn't expecting. You already had a frame of reference. No, I had a great frame of reference for in that class and that's why it was probably the easiest one. Uh, I think that you, you and I had seen some German films before, but this might not have... like not like Nazi films, yeah. not like stuff under the Reich. Right. I think the only one that we saw together was Triumph of the Will. Yes, that was with commentary, not the intended version. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's so just to be aware of our listeners, all the movies that we have now that you can find them on for free on Internet Archive. Internet Archive. Or, if you want a disc of these movies, they're they're pretty hard to find, but I recommend that you, you try the Munich Archive or Kino Video or any other video outlet. Just be careful where you spend your money. Yeah. Trying for the Will has an has an addition from Yad Vesham. So when you buy that, that video, the money goes to Yad Vesham, which is a great way to spend your money on Nazi propaganda, if, knowing that it's going to Yad Vesham. So just be careful where you spend the money because most most places that sell these movies that money is going to white supremacist causes or the Aryan nation or something like that. And you do not want to do that. So I just wanted to just sort of briefly go down your filmography. Yeah, it's also I... a educational purposes, educational purposes. <laughs> yeah, education. Just keep that in mind. Right. So it's not to show in your garage on a Friday night. No, this is, the these are not ones that you just, you put on to, you know, just put on. It's not a Friday night type genre. It's definitely viewing the past and understanding why people were, indoctrinated with these films it's not uh what well, now for us it's not for um entertainment right. purposes for, right. for the germans back then it was well for what we're doing it for is vergangen heights bewaltigung which is the dealing with your your past and the way that the the germans are dealing with their past is, is you can see that in their current movies and you can you can see how they deal with their past in in movies like uh, the first one you saw, which was Triumph of the Will, right? They're they're dealing with a lot of trauma in Triumph of the Will. The reason Triumph of the Will looks great is because the the Great War in the twenties was so horrible to Germany during the Weimar Republic. You know, their state of society and their economics. So yeah, right. But the other word, of course, is um, Volksgemeinschaft, where they're trying to build a national community, and you can see them trying to do that through through their films. And the Volksgemeinschaft you see in and Triumph of the Will is the you know the Hitler youth getting together and playing games and doing all these things mm -hmm. and trying to build a community. Yeah. Right? So I remember that you you telling me that you watched Triumph of the Will a second time. Yeah. And you watched it without the commentary in the classroom. Yes. And you liked it better. Not that I liked it better. I just appreciated it a lot more because when I first saw it with the commentary, I, was, I better have the commentary explaining stuff because you know, I know this is not like a this is very much a propaganda film. 
look how great we are and all that. With the commentary, it did take away with from the overall presentation of the film. Undoubtedly, Riefenstahl did do a lot for cinema, but her, her style is all over the film. And in one shot that I did not remember from from the commentary time that I watched it to now, when I when I most recently saw it, was the shot that you've seen in Star Wars before. It's where the SA. SA is a German acronym for Sturmabteilung. This literally means storm division or stormtroopers and was the original paramilitary wing of the Nazi party. It played a significant role in Adolf Hitler's rise to power in the 1920s and 1930s. Its primary purposes were providing protection for Nazi rallies and assemblies, disrupting the meetings of opposing parties, and fighting against the paramilitary units of the opposing parties. They also harassed Romani, trade unionists, and especially Jews with popular consent under the Weimar Republic, and Thier Street violence was protected under the Nazi regime. Is marching down the street, for, and there's a camera bird's eye view top down, and you see the shadows in front of them and while they're duck marching. And that was shot was like, I did not remember that at all, but it was a terrific shot that I've seen before. And even commemorating uh, Von Hindenburg, it's it's once again another Star Wars shot. You know, I didn't remember that at all. It's it's Hitler and two other um, of his ministers walking down the long opening with a bunch of soldiers on their left and right and going up to the hall. And it's you can see what she has done in other movies, which is quite shocking sometimes. Well, it's it's very. I remember the the first time I saw Star Wars and the ceremony scene at the end. Yeah, it was just so extraordinarily. Important impressive yes and and the people who and again you've got three people going through the masses yes yeah. very clear space, up the stairs and up the stairs and so forth and the the very um vertical lines almost like it's an altar yes which is behind a, a, a meant to kind of look like a, a stand or an altar or a church of some port, some sort and anytime anyone's ever argued this with me i've always said the uh the footstep so all of the soldiers are facing 90 degrees. Mm-hmm. And when Han and Chewie and uh, Luke, when they pass the middle mark, uh, all of them take a step 90 degrees to the right or to the left. And you hear this huge thunderclap happen as everyone's foot lands when they make that turn. Now, that is a, a sense of order. <laughs> no, yeah, that's something that the, the rebels should not have. You know, it's it's not a... If you were truly like showing, you know, a rebels fight, you know, this is not something they would really be doing. This is something completely different. Now that you bring that up, it's not something that should be in the film, but it is. When the other elements make sense, like I, I remember the first time I read that, you know, Darth Vader's helmet kind of looks like a Wehrmacht. Oh, no, of course it kind of. No, it does. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was that was the real like the oh my god, they're right. Yes. And, and that makes It's a stand-in for the Reich. I mean, it is. And and that makes total sense if you're if you're making a film about the empire. Yeah. But Lucas is making a film about the rebels too. It's part, it's the, the enemies are a stand in for, you know, the Nazis and, and the allies are a stand in for the allies, but it's more about a, from Vietnam kind of. Oh, so that's what the rebels are. They're the Viet Cong. Sort of. Yeah. Because Lucas isn't Lucas. Lucas is apparently like a Marxist. You know that? He's very left wing. He's very, he's very left. I'm not going to like you know yeah. diss him or anything. You can believe whatever, whatever yeah. he wants, but you know that's what he said. So yeah. it's well, you pick that up occasionally in his. Yeah, sometimes in his, you do. 
and it's interesting to see what he what uh, directors like do do when putting their own opinions in movies, which I really like seeing. Mm-hmm. So you know, I don't think you should keep politics out of films per se. I think you should. It's an outlet, just like anything else. Right. No, I, I don't think you keep it out of films at all. I think yeah. you can, and it, you shouldn't. And the minute there's a time you, and a place for it. Yeah. And in terms of pop culture, that's probably the highest level because Star Wars is the greatest yeah. franchise to ever hit cinemas. But there was, I don't know. There's <clears throat> Lucas is very deft. He's very smart, and I used to think that it just it just it's very inconsistent to to use that type of imagery when you're going when you're trying to convey the rebellion in a certain light. But then, of course, every time I listen to the, the Who song, won't get fooled again. I think of that line, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Windu has got the Palpatine on the floor and he's he's going to execute him because he's the bad guy. But is that the right place to do that to to a villain, right? I mean, you are supposedly a republic. You're supposed to have, you're supposed to be a nation of laws, not of men, et cetera, et cetera. You, there was a sort of inference by Lucas of meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Like the, the rebellion has a chance to be just as bad as the people that they're trying to to conquer. No, yeah, the whole the whole point of the prequels is to is to show the downfall and the the flaws of the of the republic, right? So, well, I guess I'm, I still don't understand half the prequels, but I don't think anybody does. Uh, yeah. So moving on, moving on from Triumph of the Will to Olympia, because you only saw the first part of Olympia. Yeah, yeah, okay. What, what's your question on Olympia? I mean, so I I I tried to prep you for it, like you're going to like the first hour because it's more mythical and ceremonial and so forth and the sports takes up the last hour and you're you're going to miss the bulk of it which is part two which is which is all sports but it does have the famous fencing scene mm-hmm. with the the shadows on the floor which you've seen in a million movies yeah since olympia but the but you didn't particularly like olympia no i don't like olympia it's still like a well-made movie but personally i don't like it because like it's very centered on sports and i've never enjoyed or sat down to watch sports as entertainment you know just when whenever they're doing the high jumps you know i'm just i'm kind of clocked out you know i don't it's the only reason i i even watched the movie was because i had to do it for an assignment and the only reason i was paying attention that much during the sports section was because every once in a while they would refinish all would would cut to like you know the background and who's in the who's in the stands and that was all they would cut to was you know the the, the SA or you know some SS or even Hitler. So that was the only reason I, I watched it to get what she portrayed the movement as, and that's in the first part when they're in when that uh, person's in Greece doing the whole the whole literal moving of the torch from Greece to you know Nazi Germany. You know that's very much the reason I watched that movie, not for the sports. Yeah. So. And the the runner who had the, the thermite candle when he entered the the stadium, mm-hmm. and he he burnt himself because the thermite. Yeah. Was- Falling on him. By the way, that's that stadium, the Sports Palace Stadium. That was where uh, Goebbels had a speech four years later. That was like, we need total war. We need to move the entire economy into the destruction of Europe and the Jews. You know, it was, that's the same place where 
where Hitler stood up and said, you know, I declare these games open, which is a scene that's that you actually see again in that movie Contact. If you remember that by Robert Jody Foster? Yeah, that's the scene that's yeah. clipped out of Olympia. Huh. Because uh, it was the first broadcast on German television, right? Which went on until 1943 for three hours a day for people who could afford TV sets. Okay, so not a fan of Olympia. No. So after that, you saw one of the worst movies ever made. Oh, the, Eternal Jew? The Eternal Jew. Oh, my God, yeah. Just gut-wrenching. No, that that is a quite revolting movie. That is... That is one of the most dang- that's probably the most dangerous one they've made because that's that's propaganda with documentary authority. Documentaries are very very persuasive because they should be portraying real events or giving you real statistics or facts or whatever, but that's not at all what this movie is about and it's that that's why it's the most dangerous and the most compelling because of that. You know, it's a lot of people in the class they had a discussion about which one's the more effective propaganda film is either uh Triumph of the Will or Eternal Jew, and everyone said Triumph of the Will, or at that time, we also had seen uh, Hitler Youthquakes. Uh, They had either seen those because they had more subliminal messages, but I said Eternal Jew because it's it's more real. It seems more real. That's why you'll have... I always said this, because what's going to find... What's going to give... Okay, this is how... I already said this to you earlier. If you take this same argument and put it to our standards, if you take like 9-11 for an example, if you have a documentary demonizing Arabs, it will be more effective than a movie about patriots and going into fighting wars. It will always be more effective in persuading people. That's where I, that's where my mindset comes from and why Eternal Jews is so dangerous in movies that are claiming to be documentaries are so bad. 3,000 Mules. There's movies like that, if you've heard of that. Yeah, I have. So that's why yeah. it's so horrible to you know see that movie and it portraying people as not people right so that no that movie is pretty horrible very dehumanizing no incredibly incredibly dehumanizing and lots of footage shot in the ghetto the Lotz ghetto no oh, yeah and then there's, these people are horrible and then look where they live and where yeah. you put them there it's <laughs> you look, made them like that <laughs> it's you know it's a pretty horrible movie and then the, right after that i believe we watch hitler youth quicks and then lots ghetto right so 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 the the Eternal Jew, if I remember correctly, that was Fritz Hippler, who was a, a producer in uh, UFA, appointed by Goebbels. And he's got a, a bad track record when it comes to this stuff. And the, the way that I'll close that out with is that I don't know if I ever told you the story, but when I was in grad school, they had a cinema club that I was a member of. I was actually an officer of for one semester. And then but I didn't, I didn't get to choose the first couple of years I was there. I didn't get to choose what, what movies were being screened. And the, the person who was the, who's the president at the time, who was choose, who was programming the semesters. And there was about one every, every other week. She chose Bowling for Columbine. Well, I mean, Bowling for Columbine got an Oscar, I think in 2003 for, for best documentary. And Michael Moore, made $100 million off of it. I, th- I think it was the first documentary to make $100 million ever. And there there was, certain, I went to go see it, and there there was an extraordinary amount of questions that I had about it, which I thought, even though I was right-wing at the time, I thought I should not have these questions about a documentary. Like, the documentary should not, should not present these types of questions. 
So all you had to do was spend 15 minutes in the pre-Reddit era to find people on forums online that are not right-wing, not GOP, not Republican forums saying, why is Charlton Heston's shirt change colors and his tie is different and these speeches are are melded together as one? Why are, why are there certain things? So I had these list of questions and I went to the screening. So we sat and we watched it during the screening. And I said, well, I've got some questions about it. Well, the, the moderator who was from some other university was not having it. He was just shut me down. He was like, well, no, because, you know, you're wrong. And he wasn't really presenting a whole that. lot of answers. One of the questions I had was, are we really calling George Bush a liar because he presented a medical document in which the name of the second person on the medical document is redacted? So Michael Moore was trying to say, look, Bush is trying to hide something because this medical document is redacted, when in fact it is against the fucking law to release a medical doc document with someone else's name on it. Like if George Bush wants to release his medical documents with his name on it, fine. But if there's anyone else's name on it, it's got to be redacted by law. So that raised a number of questions where Moore was like, look at this. He's lying to us. Why is he lying to us? And it goes down this rabbit hole of, you know, George Bush is a liar, which I'm perfectly fine with. You can, man's a politician. You can catch him lying out of two sides of his mouth every day and every night. That's fine. But to present this one piece of evidence as, as this is the linchpin of, of all of evil was just so over the top. So I brought that up. And there were people who were buying it, hook, line, and sinker. And I couldn't believe that these people were so gullible. And so I actually said in a meeting, folks, Riefenstahl directed a documentary too. And just because it's a documentary doesn't mean that it's true. And that's a fact. It doesn't matter if it's Riefenstahl. doesn't matter if it's Errol Morris. doesn't matter if it's... It's Michael Moore, who did a great documentary that I love called Roger and Me, which you have to see someday. And the minute this group heard Riefenstahl, they were done with me. And one guy, I will never forget, looked right at me and said, the problem with the world right now is fucking Republicans like you. And I said, okay, I'm done. I tried to have a, a reasonable discussion. I'm out. I grabbed my bag and I left. And apparently after I left, there was a near riot inside. So I left at the right time. And after that, there was a lot of yelling and screaming going back and forth. And um, my professor did the best to interact with the invitee who came from another university and they had to try to settle everybody down. And that was it. So I'm glad I left the room. I'm glad I didn't get involved in a useless act of yelling and screaming. But I think the... The fact is made that just because you claim that it's a documentary doesn't mean that it's a documentary. And the truth positive of all of this is Michael Moore did another documentary that made an awesome amount of money about how how Bush is the is the focus of evil in the world. And it's called Fahrenheit 9/11, and it's filled with so many inaccuracies that the Academy Awards refused to nominate it for best documentary. So. Therein lies the proof. If you if you think that all documentary is truth, minute by minute, then I want you to email me, thatdylandavis at gmail.com, and tell me why Fahrenheit 9-11 wasn't nominated for Best Documentary. So after that, the Eternal Jew, you had Lotes Ghetto. Yeah, that was a pretty rough one. 
So what was that about? It was about uh, the ghetto cut lots. Uh, I, th- I th- believe it was in Poland. It was just, you know, documenting the absolute atrocities that happened at that, at that ghetto. And it was a history of the ghetto. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, a, it was an approximation of the history. It wasn't like, you know, January 26th, 19th, this happens, and then January the next year. This, it wasn't like that. It was more like, it was like eyewitness accounts that were retold. By survivors and the deceased. Yeah, it was. Some it was of the deceased left of their diaries in the ghetto yeah. that were later discovered. And there was uh, photos of modern day lots and then lots back then and it was it was pretty rough to watch yeah i don't know what else to bring up it was it was a quite compelling film everything was in still images except for the beginning and the end which was in modern day poland but that was that was a pretty rough watch but it was a very uh, a very informative one about uh about the the ghettos and the the camps back then so and right about the same time, uh, your professor assigned you some bonus credit, which was watch any part of Shoah. No, that was that was also required. Yeah, I had two uh, additional required viewings that we couldn't show, and not 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 they couldn't show. It's just like you didn't have enough time to watch in in class, and that was uh, any two hours of Shoah and then Birth of a Nation. So shows on the Criterion Collection. You came yeah. home and you saw it on my shelf, and it was like, oh, you have it. I knew you had it. I, I thought you had like somewhere else. Like I think you had it previously. You had it. I didn't think you. Had the actual box set nine hour collection. Yeah. But you didn't have to watch sit through the whole nine hours. No, I just had to have two hours. So, so yeah, so we watched one era. One era. Which, I think it was the second one. Which right? was, which was about yeah, which was about the gas vans and the the sh- the shifting from shooting to gassing. Uh yes. And uh how did you find a lot of people have problems with show and the way that it's presented. So what did you think? Well what about are the, the what are the um, the complaints? Well, one of the complaints is that Cloud Landsman, um, the documentarian who put this together over 15 years, I think, he actually has a translator, and he asks something in French. The translator asks something in, say, Polish. The answer comes in Polish. She translates it back into French, and then he asks another question. And the camera and the audio recorder captures the entire conversation. And yeah. a lot of people are like, Jesus Christ, can you not just show the subject speaking in Polish? And then just give me subtitles, and we'll just cut to the quick. That was one of the criticisms. Let bro direct how he wants. It's his documentary. That's tough if you don't like it. I mean, it doesn't change the subject. It, you don't think that it slowed it down I, at all? or I mean, I, I think it was kind of important to show the whole conversation because, you know, it's very different showing... Oh, yes, they, I saw him. I saw him over there. Yes, he was taken away. I took his house. It's different than how he showed it. How he showed it was, oh, I don't know anything about that. And then he asks another question. He keeps probing. Oh, yeah, well, kind of. I know a little bit. And he probes again. Then he go, they go in detail about the person who lived over there. So it's, it's very important to see what the inhabitants felt of in, in Poland about this, this people. So there was a conversational so The conversation style. style is very important. It's not just they sit in front of a camera and they tell you what happened. They weren't, they would not have done that. The The villagers would not have done that. They would not have sat down and was like, yep, I saw that right there. He had, he had to like pry teeth. He was pulling teeth out of these out of these people to get them to tell what happened. Mm-hmm. And that was every scene in the, in the Polish village. And it was even more apparent when he got to the uh, the chapel. Oh yeah, the church. You may find it boring, but it's 
the conversation itself is is more telling than what what snippet of dialogue you could cut out. And there was only one true English speaker, which is uh, Raoul Hilberg, professor of history, who's written several books, including the the big one, The Annihilation of the European Jews, which is the basis for all modern Holocaust study. Mm-hmm. And Hilberg talks about uh, the documents and how he goes through documents and his methodology of trying to figure out what was going on. And did that have any impact on you? him being a speaker or his yeah, book? just his, well, his, him being a speaker, like his presentation. Yeah. Well, not, not because it was in English, but you know, did it have any, this is a very difficult subject, but it have any, any impact. Sometimes you can get numb when you, when you watch, like I, I took and I helped teach a class on, on Holocaust history. And I just, I could see it like I was fine, but I could see it in the students just week after week reading all of these papers, reading all of these books, you get worn down by the subject matter. It's very difficult for a lot not of people in, to, to focus. Not in those two hours of show, but it, that did happen for like the first like hour and a half of, of Lot's Ghetto. No, I know what you mean. But you didn't. You didn't find that difficult. Oh, uh, well, it wasn't. Not that it wasn't difficult to watch. Yeah. I mean, it was. It was rough, but it wasn't like you said. Well, in some of the things that you see in show, it's just sort of. I wouldn't say they're mind blowing, but they're they're sickening without using any audio like for yes. instance he's driving around in the, in the forest in the forest yeah. when he's also he's he's driving around in a truck mm-hmm. and the truck is made in, in the Saar Valley in West Germany and that truck is the same brand of trucks that they've used to gas Jews in in, in 1940 1941 so he's making and he's he's actually driving around the auto plant in which those trucks were made mm-hmm. and he doesn't say anything yeah, about the history of the auto plant, or the history of of how the, the 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 that van was was produced, or how many vans went to went to Poland, or how you know <clears throat> it doesn't say anything about that. He's just driving that van around that factory, yeah, knowing full well that's what that van was used. For. It's a it's a different style of documentary for sure. So you know, some people can get bored of the of the sit down dark room or white background. One person staring into a camera. What did you think of this? And they'll they'll cut out two, you know, two lines of dialogue. You know, some people can get to find that kind of annoying. If this is definitely a more stylistic documentary. So. Yeah, there was a there's a good documentary about 20 years ago called Hitler's Secretary. It's about Trunda Udall, who was actually his you know one of his round the clock secretaries. She was still alive, ninety something. She was one of the witnesses that was interviewed oh, by yeah. Hugh Trevor Rover yeah. in the bunker. You know. And it was that was exactly what it was. It was just her sitting on the couch, looking at the camera, and just that's answering true. questions. Yeah. You know, it got very boring after ninety minutes. Well, that's horrible to say, but you try to keep your audience entertained and the horribleness of what's going on. So, it was you'd Seuss. I thought it was enjoyable. This okay. Whatever everything I'm about to say about these next films, these are more story like fiction. When I say I like them, it means they're entertaining. And that's the point Goebbels is trying to do, is to get you to like these movies. And whenever you say that, it's not that I agree with the messages in the movie. I mean, say what you want about the tenets of National Socialism, dude. At least it's an ethos. That's very important to to say. And that'll happen with Hitler Youthquakes. I enjoyed that movie, but it's like, it's very in your face about their messages. So, Jusus, I thought, was a well-made movie. And if... I don't know how to say this, but it was it was a well-made movie, and like I even liked it. You know what I mean? So it it was 
a movie set in the past is kind of like a historical fiction type beat. Not necessarily fiction because it was based on a real person. But yeah, I did enjoy the movie. But once again, like I didn't realize what they're doing with the movie and the storytelling. It's like, we must not let Jews in here or else this will happen again. You know, it's in your face at the very end when they, when they execute them. So it's very, it's very still, it's still a Nazi film even if you like it. Do you have any thoughts on Yusus? Uh, well, I, I think it's an effective piece of propaganda, like yeah. you, like you say, and and just just the way that they can also use material and turn it because it was yeah. based on a book that had actually nothing to do with the fact that uh, Oppenheimer was a Jew. It was just the fact of this happened in 1600s Germany. Mm-hmm. That's that's it was based. And they on just a took that and, and, they took and that much and like the old and the young king, they just turned it on its head and they made it fit their their political views and made it into an overtly propaganda which was not caught at the time for many people. Right. So the old and the young king, what was that? It was about Frederick the Great, Prussia's uh, emperor or king or whatever. It was about his early life. It wasn't about his like whole life. It wasn't like a like a biopic, really. It was just about one stage in his life and how he becomes the great. So um, it goes over mainly his time with uh, Kete. Kete? Yeah. I think. so. And then uh, his father and like what it... Um, how he became but that one was more um subversive because at first i didn't catch a lot of it, it was like how is this a propaganda film and then his and his dad bursts in and is like why are you playing the flute uh why are you reading herodotus and he throws the books in the fire and is like oh my god yeah of course yeah, this book is burning. Yeah, yeah. book burning and you know the demon uh demification of uh intellectual pursuits and uh, the arts and all that it was all right uh i didn't enjoy that one as much as you'd or, or hitler youth quakes but because those ones didn't have like a scale, you know, that, you know, sometimes when you hear a name like, you know, just now, Napoleon, you, you expect the type of scale for like uh, portraying a historical figure in a film. And this one didn't do that. It was it was very much enclosed, closed buildings in a palace somewhere. And it felt like there was like two, three sets that they were just like shifted around to, or just changed a candle here and there. It wasn't, they didn't have a scale and I didn't think the, the story was very interesting, really. Now, I'm sure Frederick the Great, a lifelong story, I'm sure will be very incredibly compelling. But or a biopic. But, but this, just, was this was just one part of his, his life that was very, it was very apparent that why they picked this moment in his life. It wasn't him conquering, it was him becoming the great. And how do you become great? You throw away the intellectual stuff. So it was, it was, you see the point. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Right, it was about a, a son that did not want to do what his father was saying until it was too late. Yeah, and the, the, the father does, like, horrible stuff to his son. And any other movie outside of the Reich, you'd be like, this guy's a fucking dickhead. Like, why is he acting like this to his son? And then even at the end of the movies, I'm thankful for my father of what he has done to me. And in any other movie, it would have been horrible. As the semester went on, the films got more subtle. You can't really be that subtle with uh, Nazi propaganda stuff, Nazi uh, values and stuff like that. They did get subtle, but it was still very apparent to like, someone like me. It, so, went, it went from the obvious to the subtle. Uh, yeah, that was the point of the semester. There's a difference between, like, Yudsus and Triumph of the Will, so. So backing up and, and looking at Yudsus, and you were, your other required watching outside of class was A Birth of a Nation. Yeah. D.W. Griffith, I think it was 19, 1915. 1915. Yeah. So you had to watch that. That's a three-hour silent film. If I was to pick a movie to revitalize a, a racist organization, I would not have picked Birth of a Nation. I didn't find it interesting, really. It was quite 
sometimes it was confusing um, because they would play with time a lot and they wouldn't say anything. You know, normally they'll do cross cutting uh, at the end, which was fine with me. And I heard audiences back then didn't understand the cross cutting, especially with the end battle. But th this wasn't cross cutting in the early scenes. It was it was playing with time and jumping forward. And that wasn't at all apparent because sometimes you go whole scenes without a title card. The title card wouldn't wouldn't tell you the time. It would just be people talking. So it wasn't overtly apparent. My example is the one scene in the beginning where they're talking about um, the war. And it's like the two sons. And main guy, I think his name was Cam uh, Cameron, right? I think it was Cameron. That's right. He Next scene after talking about the war is a battle scene. And I don't know when it takes place. And then there's another scene, the two brothers in a different area, I think. Unless I'm wildly mistaken and I'm I'm at a fall for no, this, I think, but I think that's right. it was it was pretty confused. Wait, why I thought they were on the battlefield, now they're in here. And I was just a little confusing in the beginning. Once again, it's a three and a half hour silent film and it's only you can only get so far without kind of getting a little dragging on without seeing like the main sorry to say the main attraction of the film. It's horrible to say there for the clan, really. To see how people viewed the clan and what this did to the 20s. Uh, and revitalized, revitalized the revitalized Klux Klan, yeah. The point of the film for us now is watch why these people felt that this movie was so righteous or whatever to, to put on a robe. And it takes like two and a half hours to get to Cameron putting on the robe and start like terrorizing the town and shit like that. But... And even then, the only great things about this movie was action scenes and the directorial style, really. There wasn't anything particularly great about the movie. I didn't think it was that special, really. I mean, I know it was the first epic, and that was the first historical epic, like Gone with the Wind and all that. But it just wasn't very compelling. And you're someone that some people might criticize you for being young, and, and this is a silent film, and it's hard to hold no, attention. I, but, but you've actually no, seen, I'm, for your age, you've seen a lot no, of I've silent films. No, I've seen a, a fair amount of silent films, and my counterpoint to that is Strike is Fantastic by uh, Sergei Eisenstein, uh, 1925, about the about a strike in the in, in Russian Tsarist Russia. Russia yeah. That movie is, is edge of your seat at times. It's very, very compelling. I've seen Potemkin and also October. So Potemkin and, and Strike were both very, very uh, engaging movies, and those were silent films. And, but, you know, and they're going to – people will also bring up length. And he's like, well, yeah, it's a little bit longer. It was, well, he knows how to contain a story. You know, of course you could make Griffith. it Gr – Griffith doesn't really know how to contain a story. You know, uh, you know Eisenstein does. It's about – he – especially in Potemkin, you could drag Potemkin on very long. Or October, you can drag you could you could drag October out for another hour and a half if you wanted to, but he doesn't do that. He gets mainly to the point, and especially with with Strike, that movie is fantastic, and that's that's how you do propaganda. Really, is Strike. You could go into Strike in a vacuum. I need to like start going and and, and yeah. striking for the working class, and you know I hate the. I hate the the wealthy and all these industrial that that movie if you you can watch it in a vacuum and you, all the messages could fly over your head and like this is a horrible situation these poor people are in and they need to have rights and all that and that that is exactly what uh, you know Stalin wanted right and so and, Lenin. and so keeping that in mind moving from strike to Hitler Yuga quacks yeah no that's that's very much in the same vein right so I I only seen it once and I've 
read uh, the famous chapter in the book Ministry of Illusion by Eric Rentschler, which is a fantastic introduction to it. And, of course, I've been keeping up with your readings mm -hmm. in class. But I watched it a second time off of the Internet Archive. And I was amazed at how I loved it so much. And yeah, it's a good movie. And, and again, if you were to just take swastikas out of the movie, the, if you uniform, take swastikas out of the movie, and you saw it yeah. in a vacuum, yeah. I mean, you could very much be. Yeah. Th that's the no. It's shocking. No, it's shockingly good. It, it's it's definitely okay. We're gonna watch a movie about Hitler Youth, and then you walk in like, oh my god, this is like shockingly investing. You know, it, you it get had, very invested in the movie. It had father son drama. Yeah, and it's it was it was horrible to say, but it was a really good movie. What Germany are you in? I'm in the I'm in Germany. My Germany is like no, we are in our Germany. Where is Germany located? What's the capital of Germany? Berlin. Where is Berlin located? The river is like that is Germany. You are Germany. It's like you could you could get like caught up in that. You know what I mean? Well, you could, and it, it's it's very much the danger. Like one of my favorite lines from a Kubrick film is is Kirk Douglas in Paths of Glory. Yeah. When when actually he says, like, I forgot who said it, but it's something about patriotism being the last refuge of the weak. Yeah, yeah, he says that in the near the end, I think. Yeah, and it's it's just so very telling. Like I'm I'm very proud to be an American. Yeah, you know, I have the flag flying out in front of my house, but just saying that if if I want to be an American, I must do X. Well, no, I'm going to think about what that X yeah. means for me personally, for for my nation as a whole, for the world. There's a lot of thinking that goes in line, but in Hitler you quest, there's no, no no. It's very much you got to in order to be a good German, you must do this. Right. So uh, the bad Germans are the commies. And, and how they portray the communists oh, is yeah, it's, nuts. Yeah, it's, it's how they portray everyone except Nazis is pretty nuts. Um, yeah, they are They are the norm. They are the standard. They are the... No, that is like that is their ideal of like what so, someone should look up to be as a Nazi. So that's... And, and to, to put things in perspective of the film, like there are so many father issues in that movie. No, and, it, and you're looking yeah. at a nation that doesn't have a whole lot of fathers. No, it's very... It's, it's incredibly smart how this is written too, because there's there's family drama and there's political drama, and it's it, which is quite shocking. This one part of the element of the movie is quite shocking. Uh, Heine Fulker, he's the he's the main character. Also, Fulker means like man of the people or something in German, which is also kind of like a funny, of haha funny thing. He's man of the people. That's what you want to think. But anyway, um, Fulker in the film, he is. He is caught between the two sides because he goes to the, the communist rally first, and then he gets swayed to the Nazis. And it's very interesting to see um, some in the very early parts, they sympathize with Heine for falling for the commie message, right? And he is – every communist is redeemable. That is ultimately some type of message in the movie is if – as long as you are – in the end, a fascist, you are okay. And that's what happened with the actor that plays uh, Heine's father. He was a diehard communist, true and true, and then he – and he converted to like the fascist ideal. So – and then he's in the movie. So that was also something important that is displayed in the movie. And there's an entire uh, genre of these, um, including S.A. Monbrand, which is, you know, Stimaptalung man brand i was brand is the name of the sa man and then there's there's a documentary about uh sa person who's actually killed and, and then of course there's a horse vessel lead right horse vessel was an sa guy who was actually killed by a communist he was knifed to death just like hitler you get yeah based on that true story it's it's much like soviets had 
one similar. The, the story of that that kid who ratted out his parents and uh, they killed him for it, and they got turned into a national hero. But much similar. Well, even today, Rosa Luxemburg. You know, they were German communists who tried to throw a coup in Berlin after the war, and their body after they were murdered by by the uh, the Stanhelm. You know, the the Freikorps. Their bodies were thrown into the spray, and never to be seen again. Type of situation. It was absolutely horrible. But of course, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to defend no, you know, coup. communist yeah. coup. You know, uh, but there there was in Germany in 1919, 1920 was a really fucked up place. Yeah, that's right? true. So yeah. it's just very hard to pick a side. It's very hard to stay to a side. But that w- that's what's displayed in the movie. Kind of, it's like there are two sides right now, and then uh, you must choose the right one. So God, that's scary. No, that's that was their viewpoint. That's and, scary. And you can see that sometimes now. It's like you must choose. The, there are two sides, and you must choose the right one. That's how a lot of people feel right now. Yeah. So it's you have to choose the right one. Do you yeah. love America? Are you willing to do Anything? what's right for America? There's some kind of misunderstanding here. What? Are you American? Okay. Okay. What kind of American are you? You don't know. Messages displayed in these films that make you, you know, second guess a lot of these people preaching patriotism and like you must do X to to be Y. And the polarization effect is really true right yeah. now. We got this shit going on in Gaza. Yeah, right, where where people just want to blanket one side or blanket another, and you you can't say anything without it just instantly being controversial. Yeah, that's true. You know, the mention of even like everyone's against dead kids. I think. Yeah, I think uh, that's a message everyone can get behind. Right, but. The minute you choose to, to you, paint you, that with a different flag, then you're yeah. you're in trouble with the other flag. Yeah, you know you can't say dead kids absolutely are are, are bad because there's one side or the other gets pissed off. It's it's a unreal situation. Okay, you were not a fan of the broken jug. No, and I think that's a generational thing. Really, that movie wasn't funny at all, and it's supposed to be funny. The broken jug kind of it's a comedy. It's, it, not only that, but it's like it's, it was a play. And right, it's yeah, like it was a, stage a traditional play. stage play that a lot of Germans knew. So this isn't like a movie that came out and was like, oh, what's that? No, everyone everyone knew the story of the broken jug. This is the movie uh, version of it. And it's quite – it's a bottle movie too. So there's not much other sets. It takes sets place in a, in other a than, room, um, which is also the, the bedroom room. of yeah. the judge. Yeah, and it's a period piece. It takes and, place in the 1600s. Uh, yeah, in, uh, in, in, on, in the on the border in a spot. It's not in Germany. It's, uh, no, it's, it's, it's like in, it's in Holland. It's in Holland, yes. Yeah. And it, this movie's about criticizing uh, weak governments. So the whole movie, this the judge is pr- painted as uh, the most incompetent government official ever. Jannings, who was the first person who won an Oscar for Best Act. That's that's interesting. He he's in it, and Judge uh, comes in, and he's uh, he's a corrupt judge. He, he's a corrupt judge. What's the guy's name? The the, the higher the, up. The magistrate comes in. Is he the magistrate? Do a, like a quality so control. He's doing a, he's doing an inspection, and he's finding all these problems wrong with what the judge is doing. And eventually, you find out that uh, the problem with the he's dealing with right now is uh, the citizen has a broken jug, and he wants to find out who did it. And apparently, it was the judge who did it. So he gets kicked out of the town. And it's a whole uh, criticism, uh, criticism of a weak government because he, nothing really happens to him. He gets replaced and he's put on leave, but he'll ultimately come back. So the reason why it's not set in Germany is because they want to criticize uh, the German government. So they put it in a different country and say, this is 
well, imagine being in this scenario. Imagine not having a strong government like us. So yeah, that's the point of the movie. It's very strange, like it's anti-authoritarian but pro-authoritarian at the same time. Yes, it's it's criticizing the government only when it's weak, and then it it props it up when it's strong. So it's that's the point of the movie. I actually I like the broken jug. Actually, I think I told you when when I first looked at your syllabus, is like I didn't think there was a copy of that movie that existed because I had read about it before and I thought that it was lost. So I was quite happy to, to <laughs> get on Internet Archive and watch it. I thought it was entirely entertaining. It was only 90 minutes, but it was like you said, it's not for everybody. Yeah, it's it's not for everybody. I think only people in in Germany would find it funny. And of course, the only reason why Emil Jannings is in it is because Emil Jannings had it was a hit in silent Germany. He went to Hollywood to become a movie star. He successfully became a movie star in Hollywood. Everyone knew who he was. He was a huge huge actor in in America, but the he could not make the leap to sound because he had a German accent. Yeah. So it was this sort of uh, what's the movie where the silent film actors can't make it to sound? Oh, which one? You mean the uh, one with Sound uh, of Music or Babylon? No, <laughs> Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly. Oh, Sound Sing, of Music. Yeah, Singer Sing Rain. rain Singing yeah. in Rain. Yeah, that one. Right. So it was it was that type of situation. So oh, he Sound went, of Music. <laughs> so he went back to to Germany. He had other actors like Marlena Dietrich who yeah who spoke three, four, five different languages and they could they could do it all day long. That was that was. I really enjoyed it. I'm sorry you didn't like it. So, yeah, I can't like them all. You can't like them all. So then the next one that you actually, I was invited to class for this, was The Tunnel. No, that that's my favorite one of the semester. That was 1933. Yeah, so the Tunnel was really good. It's not even a National Socialist film. Like, it comes out during National Socialism, but they shot it before, uh, well, they, it, was, it was put into production before Hitler... Uh, came to power, was appointed chancellor in January 30, 1933. They was shot shortly after, and it was released that fall. So this was going to come out whether or not he was elected or appointed. Yes. So uh, tell us about the tunnel. This label is a science fiction, even though the premise isn't very impossible. But anyway, the point of the, the premise of the movie is that uh, there's going to be a massive uh, Atlantic tunnel built to connect uh, Europe and, and America. And uh, the conflict of the film is whenever um, the workers and the rich don't get along, and um, some of the some of the Wall Street guys they want to sabotage the tunnel in order to make a lot of money through uh, the stock market. So, and then you have a whole subplot with um, saboteurs uh, in the working and the, and the workers, which is obviously a standard for the communists. Um, and then there's the whole focal point of the movie is when uh, the main guy, I think his name is Alan. Alan gets up and delivers her speech and is like, we cannot strike. We must see this to the end. Uh, you know, very much uh, we are all in this together type type uh, message. But it was a very, very well-made movie. Well, it's it's pretty telling, too, because, you know, before the Nazis came to power, they were perfectly willing to strike against anybody for any reason, particularly if it was, you know, the, the Jewish boycott that went on. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. But the minute they're in power, they would not allow a strike. Yeah. They would rather fucking shoot people than than allow us. Yeah, much like Stalin, yeah. Much like Stalin, that's right. Yeah, strikes are great until I'm in charge, and then now, no way. Mm-hmm. I like that movie the best this, sem- this semester. The messages weren't nearly as in-your-face, because, like, you, you could see today a movie with the similar things, excluding the striking scene, being made. Like, uh, the the demonization of uh, the Wall Street guys and the industrialists. You could You could very much see that today. So it's not nearly as overt as the other ones, and that was kind of the point of the semester, was to see both the overt and the subversive 
uh, films with Nazi uh, values in it. Yeah, a bunch of Gordon Geckos and Patrick Bateman's running around. No, no, exactly, exactly. Okay, so after I, I thought the tunnel was fascinating, and again, that was when I not only did I not know that it that it had survived, I didn't know this movie existed. I'd never heard of the tunnel, so I was all too eager to do that. All right, Munchausen. Okay, I didn't like Munchausen for a couple reasons. Mainly the story slash stories weren't compelling, I guess. There's a lot of shit that happens in it for no reason. And the point of this, uh, Goebbels wanted to make uh, the German equivalent of... The Thief of Baghdad. The Thief of Baghdad or The Wizard of Oz. They wanted. They was like, why cannot Germany have a great film like this? And then they put into a production, uh, Munchausen. About, um, apparently this guy was based on a real-life guy called the Baron of Munchausen. In fact... Uh, I, I'm sure you know this, but like when it, in Germany, like when people say something outrageous or something like false or something, it's like, okay, yeah, that's that's interesting, Munchausen. Like they don't believe him because <laughs> right. the stories that's, are so ridiculous. That's a German colloquialism yeah. to this day. That's right. The shit like Munchausen, like riding a cannonball into into Turkey, and uh, his wardrobe gets rabies, so he has to shoot the clothes and gun with a magnifying glass that can see countries over and stuff like that, and you know. In the Wizard of Oz, the rules of the of the film are kind of like set, really. And and what I mean by that is like by the end of the film, something new that you haven't seen before isn't introduced for no reason, you know. So there isn't like some unexplained magical thing that solves the whole problem in Wizard of Oz. You know what I mean? Like a Dewey sex, like a, a Dewey sex, uh, Dewey's, um a deus ex machina yeah it's uh there isn't really that but in munchausen it's like every scene there is something new that happens that is completely out of the blue and is not doesn't make sense at all like in the the, the moment i had it was when he went, goes to the moon on a goddamn air balloon and i was like okay i'm clocked out like nothing in this story kind of like flows well and it doesn't because this all is a compilation of stories and i get that and all but none of them are told well chronologically or tonally there is a there is a scene where it's fun and games in turkey as a slave so that's something to mention he's like oh i'll just like chill out as a slave in turkey so that's that's something the in the ottoman empire and then the next scene is like his his girlfriend gets kidnapped in venice and then after that he goes to the moon and has a great time and then his friend dies you know it's not tonally consistent at all I mean, the messages in the movie are just like any other. It's just, you know, look at us. We're so great. Let's make fun of other countries while the Baron goes to visit them. Look how corrupt Italy is. Uh, look look at the what a woman's place should be when they go to the moon and all that. So I, I didn't like it. And plus the color was kind of ass. You know, it's not it's not Technicolor. It's not, you know, the searchers. So you didn't like the Agfa color? And the the Agfa color kind of sucked. They tried their best on the color, but, I mean, I've seen better color. What do you think about my theory on the red? I mean, you're probably right. You're probably right. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a color engine. I'm not a color engineer. I've seen better color. It wasn't it wasn't great. All right, Kohlberg. Um, Kohlberg, last film of the semester. I watched that uh, last week, and uh, it's about this town called Kohlberg in Germany when uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, when Napoleon goes to uh, you know conquer Europe, and he stops over in this town. So very timely. Very timely. We just saw Napoleon. I don't know what to th- say about this one. It's, this one's pretty in your face about uh, we almost died to the last man and we can't let them take our town and uh, intellectual artistic pursuits will get you killed. And, uh, and this was that. a film that debuted in, on the 30th of January 1945, 1945 yeah. which was the 12-year anniversary of Hitler being in power. 
Yeah, um, it was it was pretty nationalistic, uh, as to be expected. It was like every other scene was like, we have to die for Germany. You know, look, Germany is so great, we can't let him take the town. And uh, not only is this based on a true story, but it's also uh, the ending's false. It didn't happen. So the ending is... What do you um, mean by that? The ending, uh, a ceasefire is called because the 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 French can't take the town. Um, and then they celebrate, and that's the ending. But in real life, like the town, the town got stomped. Like Napoleon walked through and just you know took that shit with barely any problem, and nobody remembers that except <laughs> except the Germans at the time when they made the movie. It's, so it's not like a you know a fatal last stand like um like some other war movies. Uh, this also isn't a war movie. So I heard Napoleon, and I I, I assumed a war movie. But this isn't a war movie. This is a this is a drama with with battle scenes. So it's, it's pretty different. I thought it had that very impressive opening where the clear, very clearly they had. Now we know that they took soldiers out of the German army off the off, off the front, off the front, so to, that they could to film be in this certain, movie. Navy men too, right? So, um, so the openers got that very impressive scene where they're all in costume and they're coming down, and you know, for I mean, it's almost like a Deutschland über alles moment. The, this movie has something on um, uh, what was it the old and the young king that uh, that they don't have, which is scale uh, when presenting like something like this. So this movie has a sense of scale that is great, and um, the town is magnificent to look at, and the amount of people in the battle scenes are great. It's just more pleasant to watch than uh, Old and the Young King because it's a little bit more entertaining. You know, I wish there was a little bit more Napoleon in it, but uh, it's all right. There's like two scenes with him in it. So. This is a film that, again, like I saw 20 years ago, but I, I saw it on DVD on probably a smaller screen, and when I watched it uh, in in class with you last week, I was... I was actually kind of shocked at the ending where, you know, Kohlberg is really hammered to shit by artillery yeah. and they're blowing the hell out of it. And this is probably something that a lot of people in Berlin, in January, 1945 can relate to. Like, Oh yeah. my God, Kohlberg looks like my town, but Kohlberg wasn't really very well uh, distributed because there were most cinemas in Germany were bombed out. I mean, Germany by 1945 yeah. was, uh, you know, part of it was occupied on both fronts. Yeah. The, the film, it was, I, I I enjoyed it, but it wasn't uh, uh, terrific. You know what I mean? Of course, there are messages in it that are, uh, especially the, the the deification of the queen, where uh, they present the the queen whenever uh, the main um, heroine goes to deliver a letter about uh, the. So I think it's Frederick III's wife. Yeah, so, someone like that, and then because Frederick the Great is in a tomb, and yeah, Napoleon, and Napoleon goes him. and is like, "Would I be here if the great Frederick was uh, here to stop me?" You know, type of admiring the. Uh, As the if German. Napoleon ever said such a thing. Yeah. Napoleon was pretty sure that if he squared off against Alexander the Great, he'd win. You know, <laughs> when she gives a letter to the to the queen, uh, it's it's almost like the whole tone of the movie changes like in the color it seems very different it's it's very much like a deification of of your leaders and i'm i'm guarantee you hitler kind of liked it if he saw this movie he was like this is how i want people to treat me you know she's well, almost was... brought to tears giving the the right. letter to the queen in the presence like, in of the such presence greatness. of such greatness type type stuff and i i wonder if there was if that was any type of comment on ava braun or something like that, uh, you know. Which, I don't know. Which most Germans didn't even know her name. You know, she was she was top secret. Could talk about her. Some of the things in in the essay that that came along with it, and there's a chapter on Kohlberg and, and Eric Rentschler's book too. Some of it was really shocking. Like, you know, they spent like a year making the Alpha Color film for that, 
and then uh, Vite Harlan went down to Venice and he shot like 50,000 feet of film in Venice for the regatta down there. And they used like three minutes of it in the movie. Like that's an extraordinary, most films you just shoot 100,000, 150,000 feet and that's it. That's all you need for movies. Unless you're Kubrick. Unless you're Kubrick, yeah, or David fucking Fincher, you know. So I, I was pretty pretty shocked at that, that the, the expenditure on that was big. And, and then, of course, you know, since you mentioned Kubrick, Veit Harlan was, you know, his niece is Christian Harlan, who, who married Stanley Kubrick. That's Christian Kubrick. And and uh, I don't know, she didn't comment on Kohlberg, but I did watch a documentary on, on her uncle. And uh, Christian Kubrick is in that movie. And she says that she saw Yud Seuss when she was a, she was younger, she was a teenager, and it made her want to vomit. <laughs> She said it made her physically sick. Yeah, that's yeah. And, and then, of course, she said that uh, Stanley was uh, great friends with her brother Jan Harlan, uh, who worked for a while, worked for uh, for Vite, and that uh, Jan Harlan and and Charles Harlan and and Kubrick got together and they tried to create a script about what it was like to work in the Ministry of Propaganda, work for Ufa during the Nazi regime, and they never could figure out a plot. Right. What is it like to go in and just, you know, that's your life every day is working for this evil machination. You know, I'd, I'd pay money to see that. Well, it's a, it's a good concept. It's a, it's a really good concept. Particularly coming from, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming this is, this is known. Stanley Kubrick was a, a Brooklyn Jew. And, and uh, the fact that he, he married the Harlans is just kind of just out of left field. This is one of the things that you just, Totally did not expect. And the fact that Kubrick knew this guy, he knew Veit Harlan, who did Kohlberg, who directed Yudzus, who did all these movies. It's a very bizarre fact of life. Anyway, in total on the course, did you enjoy taking the course and seeing all these movies? Or Yeah, yeah, I'd take it again. It was pretty great. Oh, I always liked to go into uh, out of class and watch these movies. It was probably the highlight of semester, really. I liked it. I would take another film class for sure if it fits my... Uh, my my thing, my credits that I need. What uh, what type of, what would be your your next type of class? Like Vietnam cinema, Weimar cinema, silent cinema. Is there one that you could pull out and look at? Technicolor cinema. Is there something that? I hear French cinema has a lot of good stuff, but I'll skip the one on Breathless. Yeah, the, the French New Wave. French New Wave, I heard is pretty good. And I don't I don't know. I really don't have a. If I if I read the the country it's from, I'll I'll think about it because uh, I don't really have a. A problem with watching uh, films from a specific country and time, as long as they're good. It's all that matters. Really, yeah. Hitler, you go quacks. That was a good movie, and quite shocking. So, all right. Well, thank you for spending time. Uh, yeah. Do you have any other questions about the class or uh, any other things? No, I just um, I just wanted to make sure that you got value out of it. I mean, the minute you saw, yeah, I really board, liked I was, it. Yeah. I was really impressed. Yeah, you. I know you were more hyped than me. I was at, at a lot of points. I was like, oh, he's watching Hitler, you quacks next week. Like, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. And that wound up being good. And then, of course, other times I was thinking, oh, he's probably not going to like that one very much. But it's, you know, it is not every film you watch is a banger. Yeah, that's true. And that's true. When it, particularly when it comes to national socialist cinema, it, it becomes it becomes an ordeal to, to sit on that and ruminate and think about that. No, yeah. I, I would not want to watch another one right now. Uh, I might take a couple of years before I watch another Nazi film because that is getting, it gets pretty draining by the end of the semester watching because it's like the same shit over and over again. It's like, it's just 
Goebbels giving a reach around to the Nazi party. It's just kind of annoying. <laughs> I do want to see the Golden State. Um, or I'm sorry, the Golden City. They're Golden Stadt. I, I hear it's really good, but I, I've seen a lot of National Socialist cinema in the past three to six months, and I'm just going to give it a break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. Overall, pretty great class. I, I would take it again if I didn't see it. If, it, right. if the film set, if the if film set, set was like different, I would definitely take it again. It was really interesting. So, well, thank you very much for coming by and talking about the holdovers and Nazi cinema. With you. Yeah, I hope you split this up. It'll be very. <laughs> oh hell no! Same episode. Okay, that's. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for listening to Luke and I discuss National Socialist Cinema. You can email me at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. I'm also on Threads and Letterboxd. All music by Rosalind McPhail. I'm Dylan Davis, and you'll see me next time, who knows where. an event which had passed even a few days but you could go back and watch it the Germans were at the forefront because they always had this incredible quality of lenses, quality of lab work uh, you can tell a German photograph from 50 paces because it, it jumps out at you, it's so well done in every possible way and the Nazis who, who have nothing original about them whatsoever they just continued other practices and they uh, had first class cameramen first class lab work there. and they also put it all out in 3D did you know that all the campaigns you could buy Poland, France 
who put the glasses on and you looked at all these stills. Again, most, many of them staged for the camera. The soldiers are jumping over the camera for no reason other than it's a stereoscopic effect. And also in colour, Agfa colour. Um, you know the programme, What Have the Romans Done for Us? Um, there should be one on What Have the Nazis Done for Us? Because Agfa colour became Eastman colour. Uh, recorded tape we wouldn't have without the Nazis. Videotape. Uh, it, there's so many um, adv technological advances. But uh, in every other way, quite the opposite.